Hey guys, this is the Sustainable Cell Development Podcast, and in this episode, I'm talking to Menno Henselmans from BeijingBodybuilding.com. Menno is a physique coach, scientific author, fitness model, and overall top expert who has taken the fitness world by a storm, and for a good reason. Not only are his methods highly science-based, he represents a very unique combination of rationale and logic-crafted nutrition and training principles and applying the most hardcore scientific knowledge that we have available. He's now known for his high-frequency training methods, his unconventional views on hot topics like body recomposition and nutrient timing, and for the longest time, he was the first person to actually question whether we should really all consume one gram of protein per pound of body weight for optimal muscle growth. I've had the chance to participate and being certified in his Bayesian bodybuilding personal trainer certification program, which I reviewed previously on my channel if you're curious, and which I would highly recommend for people who are really serious about their fitness education. In this episode, we discussed Menno's contest prep diet for a physique show in which he participated not that long ago and discussed how he managed to get down to a very respectable single-digit body fat level without tracking his calories and his macros at all. We talked about how you should set goals for yourself to succeed in life and then of course we delved into some nerdy topics like gaining muscle in a caloric deficit and whether bulking really is all that necessary for gaining muscle in the first place. We also talked about Menno's unconventional stance of taking deloads for training and what he likes to do instead which is reactive deloading. We then also learned some cool things from Menno, for example, how he manages to be so productive in his content production and developing his expertise in fitness. And we also learned about how he managed to become a record holder in 12 different sushi restaurants around the world. So needless to say, tons and tons of cool topics here. As always, if you're watching this on YouTube, use the timestamps to navigate between the topics. And for now, enough of me and let's get to the interview. Menno Henselmans, welcome. Welcome, my pleasure. Um, so my first question would be, um, is that you recently competed in a physique show. And uh, I, I read through some of your archives in, in preparation for this interview, and I read something like, so I competed in the WBFF, and the whole contest prep have been an absolutely ex amazing life experience. And I was just thinking, like, what are you talking about, man? Like, a contest prep diet, an amazing life experience? That's usually not what I hear. Like, how is it possible? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the major thing I did differently uh, for this contest prep um, compared to most of my photo shoots, for example, is that I followed an ad libitum diet, so I wasn't tracking my macros at all until the last weeks out. So I was pretty much in man's physique kind of shape um, before I even started tracking my macros, which is, um, for me, for my kind of psychology, a far more pleasant way to diet. Um, and I learned a lot about um, stress management and um, food choices because uh, this prep was very hectic. It was rescheduled. The show date, um, or originally I wanted to compete in a different show. So I ended up being in contest prep for about three months longer than I wanted to be, um, which, you know, most people don't like doing, uh, being that lean for so long. 
And we were also in various countries. We had some problems with uh, Airbnb. For those that don't know, um, my girlfriend and I live a digital nomad lifestyle, so we pretty much travel nonstop. But for the contest prep, um, you know, for ease of mind, the plan was that we would be situated uh, more in certain locations in Brazil, for example, for a long period, because the hassle of moving every time is not something you want during contest prep. But um, life didn't turn out that way. And due to some problems, we had to move, I think it was seven or nine times or something in total. Um, and that really um, taught me a lot about uh, traveling, food choices, stress management, all of those things. So I think like many things, um, bad experiences can in the long run be very positive for your, um, for your life experience. Absolutely. And um, so two quick points off of this. One is a, a geeky question right away. So just to give people some perspective on what one can achieve with, without tracking, what like around what body fat percentage would you say you were at when you actually had to start tracking macros to keep dropping fat? Mm -hmm. I'd say I was about 7%. So you could classify it as a men's physique kind of level. So um, that was the level before my glute striations uh, started. My, um, you know, I had some vascularity in my quads, but not separation uh, within the heads and striations everywhere, um, not like the roadmap kind of vascularity on uh, the hamstrings. So um, you can get in very good shape um, by all average uh, people perspective, basically. Uh, if um, you have a lot of experience with it and you have a lot of muscle mass, which is both very important things. Um, but from a bodybuilding point of view, very, very few people are going to be able to step on stage uh, in actual modern bodybuilding contest shape without tracking their macros. Yeah, but just to give people some perspective, if, if they just want to look good and they say, oh, like Brad Pitt and Troy, like he looks really good, like you can get to that level without tracking. That's basically Absolutely. the message here. Yeah, fantastic. So um, speaking of, of that, all that traveling, I, I've heard before that you're a digital nomad. Is this some kind of a life mission of yours to like hit a certain amount of countries in a given amount of time or something like that? Like, did you miss out on traveling a lot earlier or what's going on here? Yeah, no, it's not, it's not like that at all. Uh, I do, I've met some other nomads and often, you know, they say, um, I've been in 52 countries or whatever. And I don't even know how many countries I've been in. I don't keep a tally. I don't care. Um, in fact, during my, um, it was only until I was um, basically after my bachelor's that I first even considered moving abroad because I always thought I lived in the Netherlands. Uh, I grew up quite wealthy. And um, so I didn't see any use really in terms of education or facilities or job opportunities to move abroad and it would just you just lose your whole social network and i always told people like because uh, it's always like a cool thing to do you know especially at university college which is an interdisciplinary international honors college in the netherlands it's sort of the best we got in terms of education and uh, it's really cool there to go abroad. You know, it's like something you can say, like, I've, oh, I have studied in New York and 
whatever. And I never really got the appeal for any of that. Um, and I went to Warwick University simply because it was the best university that offered the education that um, I wanted to do at the time. Um, so I, at that point, I thought moving to the United Kingdom was more of a, a necessary sacrifice for my education, not something with inherent value. Um, and then I started off as a business consultant in the Netherlands. Um, also quite a bit of traveling, but not internationally. And at some point, I um, well, then I transitioned into fitness and um, we actually moved abroad. And actually, one of the reasons we first moved abroad was, well, for one, we could. Um, and that certainly the idea grew. And, you know, when I was a business consultant, I was uh, searching online a lot about um, uh, researching uh, subjective well-being or life happiness, what makes people happy in life, you know. And um, that basically led me to uh, form the digital nomad lifestyle. And it, it was only afterwards that I actually learned that it was called that way and that there were other people doing this. Uh, by that time, I'd already visited a couple countries and it it just made sense at the time, basically. And I've, I've really loved it ever since. Right. So... Um... I'm glad you mentioned your transition into the fitness uh, lifestyle because, or, or the, this fitness industry career that, that you have now, because I'm curious, when you made the transition into the fitness uh, field, which was five or six years ago, roughly, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. something like that. Um, did you have like a, a laid out, because now you have a lifestyle that is very appealing, I think, for, for most people. I mean, you travel a lot, you speak at conferences, you're a top coach, you publish papers, and, and you have your own personal trainer certification program. Did you have like a, a goal in the beginning? It's like, okay, within a year, I want to have achieved this and this and this, and within five years, I want to have achieved this and this and this. Or was it just like, okay, I, I love sports, I love fitness, so I just want to get into this and we will see how it will all unfold. Um, it, it's a mix. I'm very, very intrinsically motivated. So I always set very strong goals for myself. Like I want to do this. And one of the first goals was simply, I want to be able to be a self-sustainable entrepreneur, have my own business and be able to live on it. Um, but I never put dates on anything, not from college. I've never done that. I don't see the point in it. I think it's just arbitrary. You put a number on it. Why would you? Um, you just do the best you can do in the, the time you have. Um, so I've, I've had that for my education also, um, even at primary school, for example, I was uh, valedictorian, which is it's like oh. Latin for a person scoring the highest uh, grade. I'm not sure if it's like, um, uh, I think in the Netherlands it's not really known. Anyway, and a lot of people actually told me like, um, I shouldn't do it, you know, because some people are like, it's nerdy, but most people wouldn't consider me nerdy, so I never... Uh, that ne never really bothered me. But even my parents were like, there's no point in scoring higher grades than you are doing now. It's just, it, there's literally no point. But I didn't care. It was my goal. I thought that I was capable of it. So um, I just had this intrinsic need that I needed to do it. And it was like that for all my educations. Um, also as a, person, a personal trainer, um, a clear example was my publication uh, with Brad Schoenfeld in sports medicine, I had the goal, I wanted to publish a paper in the highest ranked journal in exercise science. So I worked on that and eventually I did. And I've got, it's, it always works for me like that. Right. So um, 
Yeah, it is interesting because this is actually something that we learned about. I've taken your personal trainer course, and this is something we learned about. So pretty much like what is your uh, philosophy on, on goal setting then? Is it just like a, a pursuit of, of excellence and improvement or, or or like so you think it pretty much should not be time bound necessarily? Yeah, I think um, indeed to refer to the PT course materials, um, the mindset that I'm talking about is basically an example of a growth mindset. And you see that many uh, individuals who are successful in what they want to do, they have this kind of growth mindset. They're not looking for, um, you know, certain numbers or they don't put dates on anything. They just have the mindset that they want to grow. They want to develop. They want to get better than they were before in whatever the goal is. And this is very different from what you often see, especially in fitness, uh, which is called performance goal setting. And that's basically saying, I want a 300 pound bench press. And I think that uh, those kind of goals, and there's also, as you've seen, a lot of psychological literature on this, they are not, um, they don't contribute to the actions that you need to do to actually reach the goal. So it's just empty words, basically. If everyone wants a 300 pound bench press, you're not, if you're looking at the end result, then you are by definition not looking at the things you need to do to get there, which is what should be your priority. And especially in fitness, when daily and weekly goals, and especially the daily goal, you know, hitting your daily macros or going to the gym, hitting uh, today's workouts, rep target or whatever, those are the goals that are actionable. Those have practical meaning in your life. And the end result doesn't. It's just an estimate, it's arbitrary, it doesn't have any practically useful information. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I love that mindset and that concept. And uh, just, so listeners can already hear that you have kind of unconventional uh, stance on some things. And just before we kind of um, jump into some of the geeky stuff that I want to ask you about, um, when did that point come in your own fitness journey when... You know, I think there are two types of people in the fitness industry, in, at least it, within content producers. One is the innovator and the other one is the simplifier. And the simplifier, I mean, is the guy who is not really putting anything new out there, just kind of puts his own spin on content that is already out there. The vast majority of professionals in the fitness industry are simplifiers. Uh, when did that point arrive in your own life when you said, you know what, I'm not just going to read blogs and other experts' content. I'm actually going to dig into the research journals myself and look up stuff and question age-old dogmas and truisms and all that stuff. When did that point arrive in your life? Do you remember that? Um, I'd say it's something I learned mostly um, during my bachelor's and especially my master's uh, education. Um, I always had it. Uh, to a lot to a large extent really I'm very um, like I say intrinsically motivated and I really have my own strong opinions about things and um, um, I'm not as swayed by other people's opinion as uh, many people are which has its benefits but also its downsides and um, during my education I really learned um, strongly because I had really really good professors that taught me this that just the majority opinion, it doesn't mean much. You should always look at the research yourself, come to your own conclusions, just look at the actual facts and come and interpret those, come up with a model of the world that makes the most sense given those facts and then see what the implications are of that. 
And one of the, I think, one of the things that really helped me most in this regard, because this is a very, very difficult skill, was that I studied behavioral economics. And in economics, economics, by the way, is a field full of really, really smart people doing mathematics that in some cases are even uh, beyond what I could intellectually uh, perform. And these really, really smart people um, in aggregate, like many, many of those really, really smart people are still stuck in the notion that humans are rational creatures. And this is something that is just so incredibly blatantly false if you have read any psychological research at all, uh, or you've actually just lived as a human being, that it is very difficult to actually, to even conceive of the fact that these people cannot see it, even that though they are in many ways, you know, in terms of beta intelligence, uh, far smarter than I am. So this realization um, that a whole field of these kind of people can be so incredibly off about something so fundamental to their field because it's the very, very basics of economics, right? Everything in economics is dependent on the assumption that people are rational creatures and that they make rational decisions and therefore, and you get whole economic theory. But that whole fundamental assumption is fundamentally flawed. Mm -hmm. And if those can be, people can be wrong about something like that, then, you know, what does it mean if a few bros in the gym Thing, have some opinion about the science of metabolic stress. It's not, um, it doesn't tell you much. So in your timeline now, we're already at the point where you're transitioning into the, in, into the, that point when you're making the switch to uh, the fitness industry. Would you say that at that point, you already had a knowledge base that was pretty close to what you have now? Uh, no, definitely not. Um, I've grown a lot in terms of knowledge. Um, even during my college days and before that even, I was reading more about exercise science and nutrition than I was about the fields I was actually studying uh, because it, it had always been my passion for some reason. And, um, but when I actually became independent and I got more responsibility and I had many clients that were depending on me, and I also at the time, it definitely rose to a whole new level. So yeah, what what made the biggest improvement? Like, what what are the biggest refinements, or on, on what fields do you do you think you made the most kind of advancement or, or improvements in your coaching practices and your own knowledge base? It, it really varied over time. For like I said, during my uh, past year, this contest prep has taught me a lot more about uh, libitum dieting and stress management. Um, over the years, my own injuries are something that helped me. Um, develop my knowledge on injuries a lot. Uh, so that's something that more gradually occurred. Um, in terms of the fundamentals of, you know, rest intervals, training volumes, those kind of things. Um, changes haven't been as large, but I did have this um, about three years ago. Um, very big change in my programming methods uh, that are now known as the high frequency method of Bayesian bodybuilding where I implemented a lot more higher training frequencies in more advanced individuals. And um, so it, it's a very gradual process. There wasn't like um, a moment when I had an epiphany and, you know, I got it and it, it turned out to be B instead of A. Usually you find that if you are 
um, research-based to begin with in the, um, the opinions you have or the beliefs you have, then it's more like gradual changes over time that accumulate to differences in application. It's not that you know you get these eureka moments and suddenly your whole method changes. If that does happen, that's usually a sign that coaches aren't evidence-based, you know, because if a new study comes out, it's not often that there isn't any background literature on it. So um, it's almost never the case in science that one study changes everything we thought about a topic before. Right. So, for example, when you started your coaching practice, you were not a proponent of, of high, this, this high-frequency approach that now you... Uh, promote is that right that's right not at all actually um if anything i theorized that uh, training frequency should go down as, as you get more advanced training volume increases and you need, need more recovery time oh wow i okay i that, that's very i didn't know i thought you were like um as far as as human history goes back you were a high frequency guy but it's it's interesting to know that you weren't yeah and um okay so let, this is actually a good segue. Let's get into some some nerdy stuff that you have become renowned for. And and one thing certainly is the whole concept of gaining muscle and losing fat at the same time. And you've spoken about this at various times that you can, in fact, gain muscle in a deficit. And, you know, there's always kind of these two sides of this. One end of the spectrum goes says, like, yo, no problem. You can recomp and gain all the muscle you can in a deficit. And the other side kind of says like, well, if you're a newbie or you're very overweight or you're new to proper training, then maybe you can. Um, could you just, for the listeners, outline just how important is the whole concept of energy balance for muscle growth specifically? Right. Um, so the, the impact of energy balance on muscle growth, um, it exists for sure. And it's a dose response, basically. So... Um, if you, the difference between a 20% deficit and being at maintenance is quite significant, but then if you go into a 5% surplus, you get additional benefit. But if you then go to say into a 50% surplus, then you're getting into the level where at some point all of the excess energy that you're consuming is just going to pile on as fat tissue because you've, you've maxed out your rate of muscle growth, basically. Now, theoretically, maybe uh, there's always you know, some incremental return, but it, at some point in practice, it's just so small and not worth the fat gain anymore. Uh, but this impact, this general effect on energy balance, on protein balance, and ultimately muscle growth is far smaller than many people think. And uh, in fact, there are lots of studies that um, do not find any difference in the rates of muscle growth, even though uh, they study diets with a different energy content. And we have a few um, sort of direct studies on this, uh, especially Scandinavian literature uh, that actually looked at this directly on the rate of muscle growth as a function of energy balance. But we also see this a lot in uh, research on protein intake that is often not controlled for energy. So there, for example, we see that um, groups that consume a lot more protein and energy do not actually gain more muscle mass, even though they consume both more protein and more energy than the other groups. So it's uh, definitely a high understated, um, an overstated relationship, basically. So not, you not only can gain muscle mass when you're in energy deficit, the difference between how much muscle you can gain uh, versus when you are in energy surplus is actually not that large, but it does exist. Right. So um, actually, okay, 
I'm, I'm, I'm in a big dilemma which question to ask first. But first, um, you mentioned that you've had a, like an eight-month-long bulk and you tracked your body composition very meticulously. And by the end of eight months, you concluded that you gained one pound of muscle. Do you think you could have gained that one pound of muscle given the elite training advancement that you are at in, a, let's say, a 5% deficit? Uh, it was actually a year, um, and it was it was a bulk and a cut basically. So it could well have been that it was eight months of bulking, four months of cutting. Though I think it would have been less cutting even. Um, so that I ended up at the exact same fat percentage based on the measures that I had, and then indeed I concluded that I'd gained a pound, uh, and I think I've gained about two pounds more uh, since then, which is uh, hmm. pretty good. It's almost that same rate. Um, over the last three years or so. So um, I'm quite happy with that, <laughs> which yeah. to a lot of people might sound like um, it's, it's really bad if you're in the gym every single day and uh, you gain a pound of muscle a year. But I'm happy with that because my expectation was that it would be zero pounds. Yeah. yeah. Good question. Could I have also gained that pound of muscle without bulking? Um, I think not. In fact, um, this is largely anecdotal because, as I said, the research doesn't really support this at all. But uh, anecdotally, I think you come at a certain point when you are really advanced and you are bordering uh, on touching your genetic limitations in terms of muscle mass, that you get to the point where uh, the body simply won't uh, grow anymore at all, basically, if you are not in energy surplus. And it's basically... Um, where you get into, people always say like the fine tuning is the final 10% and you hear Pareto rules, you know, about people say, uh, you get your protein in, you do strength training, that's 80% of your results. Anything else you do is the remaining 20%. May well be true for a novice level lifter, but um, what a lot of people experience is that they simply stop growing at all. And I've been stuck, if I look at my own progression over the, what is it, 12 years or something I've been training, then, there are many periods where evidently I did not grow at all. And I was getting my protein in, I was training hard, you know, my diet was composed of whole foods. I had the very basics, right? But there was just no further growth. So I think you get into this point where either any growth that you obtain is lost during your weight loss periods, or um, you are simply not growing anymore at all. So you're actually looking at threshold effects and not uh, diminishing returns effects. Yeah, I, okay, I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up because in, on, in your PT course, one thing that we learned about extensively is how as you get more advanced as a trainee, uh, nutrient timing and making use of the anabolic window, as they call it, it becomes increasingly important. Now, my question to you would be, do you think it would be a fair statement to make that for an advanced lifter like yourself or even less advanced, um, getting the workout nutrition right could be just as important or even slightly more important than being in an energy surplus across the weeks for muscle growth? For sure. Actually, there's a study by, I think it's Holmi et al, 2005, 2016, or 2015 or 16, um, I think it's 15, that directly at groups that made this comparison possible. And they found that the protein timing was actually the more determining factor of muscle growth than total energy intake. Um, so I think absolutely this is the case. And I mean, if you think about it logically, um, you think, say you have two trainees and one of them makes sure that 
just like the traditional bro gets in his protein shakes, the post-workout shake, pre-workout shake, whatever, even if it's not fully science-based, um, has six meals a day and only eats white rice, broccoli, chicken. So he's basically cutting non-stop or at best he's at maintenance. And the other trainee uh, consumes a lot more energy by bulking, but he trains first thing in the morning and consumes all of the energy in one meal at night, at dinner. I think intuitively almost everyone would agree that the person with the one meal at dinner and training in the morning is not going to be as successful as uh, the other. The audio here cut out, but he said that the person eating one meal a day will not be as successful than the other person having nutrient timing better dialed in and eating overall less energy. Energy. Right, right. Uh, and, and I'm glad you uh, brought up a hypothetical study scenario because that's just what I wanted to ask. Like, let's say we have two groups of advanced trainees, same body fat percentage, everything is the same, but one is in a 5% surplus and the other one is a 5% deficit. But the 5% deficit group has the workout nutrition dialed in and the other one has a completely suboptimal uh, nutrient timing, let's say, you know, very suboptimally spaced out, which, so do you think that the workout nutrition uh, group would gain more muscle? Yeah, in general, yes. Obviously, it depends on the specifics, you know, because if you're looking at one group that is consuming um, a whole meal two hours before their workout and another whole meal one hour after, and the nutrient timing group also has a shake in that period, then probably you're not going to find major differences, if any, because the whole uh, period is already covered uh, with hyperamino acidemia, um, so the presence of sufficient amino acids in the blood. So then, you know, there is no more additional effect. But if you're looking at like a more extreme scenario, like what I was talking about, then absolutely. Right, right. Fantastic, fantastic. All right, geeky question number two. Your stance on deloads, which uh, you published a great article uh, on that. Um, for for me, it was it was not that new because I I took your course. But um, I mean, I think your your stance on pre-planned deloads is 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 one of the most um, kind of unconventional stances that that you took um, recently. So could you just very briefly outline your your definition of of deloads and what your general stance on that is? Sure. What most people uh, think of as a deload is essentially a proactive and arbitrary form of deloading. So. For a certain time period in the future, you plan that you are going to, for example, take a week off. That's a very typical kind of deload. Um, however, or in contrast, what I do in my method is I program reactive deloads, which are um, sort of mini deloads that are specific to exercises or muscle groups, and they occur whenever a program, whatever progress does not happen as planned. So if you uh, had your program scheduled that you would gain five pounds on your deadlift in this week for an intermediate lifter, for example, then um, if the lifter does not reach that level, you would, for example, uh, skip all remaining sets of the deadlifts for that session. And that would be a reactive deload. And I'd say this makes a lot more sense than the typical kind of deloading because for one, it's auto-regulated. So you deload when you have a an actual good reason to suspect overreaching um, because by definition if you aren't gaining strength as planned that means that you are either under or over training if your program's good um, and you're training for sufficient volume and stuff under training uh, to the extent that you're not progressing at all or even losing strength 
is quite rare, so overreaching is more common. Um, whereas for an arbitrary deload peak, it doesn't make sense. You have people, for example, um, three weeks on the program, one week off. They're making excellent progress these three weeks. There's no sign of diminishing returns. Everything is going great. They, they don't have any injuries. Why would you take a week off? Because people are lazy. This is the only reason. People want to hear that, you know, they can take a week off and they're actually going to grow a lot of muscle in that week. It's actually beneficial. Anything you can say to people that uh, makes them do less and gain more is going to be incredibly popular, even if logically it doesn't make any sense. Um, also, theoretically, uh, from a muscular point of view, most deloads are whole body oriented, whereas the vast, vast majority of what we know about muscle growth is that it is a regional, a local process. So the muscle growth of your biceps is largely independent of the muscle growth in your quads. I wrote an article on this in Alan Aragon's research review called about structural balance theory for those interested. Um, you need to pay to get access though. And uh, basically there I show that this is indeed the case, that muscle growth is a local process. Um, so good reviews by Stuart Phillips on this as well. So it doesn't make sense to stop squatting because your biceps is overreached. It's really that logical, basically. Right. Now, uh, to me, this intuitively makes a lot of sense. Um, however, I did have Dr. Mike Isratel on the podcast, and, and I'm trying to not butcher completely what he told me, but basically his stance was the reason why pre-planned deloads um, seemingly arbitrarily are necessary is because by auto-regulating and, and doing this kind of reactive deload, you're basically enabling those systems of your body to recover from session to session that can recover from session to session. So for example, glycogen, some neurological aspects, but some structures like your connective tissue, muscle tendons, and bone simply don't recover from session to session and damage and kind of stress can accumulate over time without you realizing it. And if you never take a, a pre-planned like week-long lighter training block then over time that's when these injuries happen when you don't even realize that something's wrong because you feel great and your tendon just pops out of your bone um what do you think of this so um it's it's quite dubious if uh connective tissue recovery and muscle recovery are um are separable basically so if you look at the research on protein synthesis for example we see that actually the anabolic window period of net uh, net increase in um, muscle fullness or the ceiling of muscle protein synthesis tends to uh, be shorter for tendons than muscle tissue so uh, that would suggest um, this wouldn't be the case however anecdotally i would say that it is indeed the case you can do damage at a level um, that does not result in pain yet or anything, but over time accumulates an injury. However, then still a reactive deload will take care of it. So as soon as you, it crosses the threshold of pain, the damage level basically, you have a reactive deload. And if it stays that way, you stay deloaded. So then you basically get the benefit of that week off in the tissue that needs it. But you are not, again, deloading uh, your squats because you have elbow tendinosis, which mm -hmm. uh, isn't needed. So, uh, I mean, it can make some sense from an injury point of view, but it's needless and compromises uh, your progression, basically. Um, 
even though you're not sure that you actually need a deload. Right. Yeah, I, I think I think now I understand the fundamental disagreement between what you and him are saying. And uh, if I strawman his argument, then Dr. Israel, I'm sorry. But uh, I think I think the fundamental difference is that by doing the reactive deload, you're basically continuously auto-regulating your training volume, right? And And what he's saying is that it's not necessarily so much about the training volume, it's more so about the actual process of overloading your muscle because you're still overloading and overloading and overloading and that by nature poses a type of stress on your 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 connective tissue that is damaging by itself and poses a risk by itself and if you never take a, a, a lighter period and a break from overloading then you will get injured sooner or later um again what would you think of this yeah, I think you're not you're not continuously overloading if you're active deloading. Um, so that's one thing. Um, in terms of practical results, um, because you know theoretically you can bo go both ways. Um, actually, we do have some a uh, lot of science that active recovery actually helps speed up recovery. So if you have elbow tendinosis and then still doing squats and the like is actually very likely to speed up the recovery of your elbow tendinosis by promoting blood flow, tissue turnover, increased protein synthesis rates, activation of the immune system, uh, especially in certain connective tissues uh, that otherwise receive very little blood flow if you're not engaging in exercise of a sufficient intensity. Um, so it can actually be beneficial for those injuries to heal. Moreover, um, what I've experienced is that reactive deloading is an excellent way of uh, keeping injuries in check before they get worse. So in my experience, for example, I have been, well, depending on what you mean by an injury, injured in pretty much every body part there is. <laughs> but I have never really had anything serious um, that had me out of the gym for more than a few days. Hmm. So I've had to adapt my program, implement reactive deloads, adapt the program in terms of exercises, switch out, uh, for example, when my knees um, get problems, I might switch to low bar back squats instead of front squats. Those are generally easier on the knees and I can do those pain-free and I progress for the next months again and don't have any issue. Then I might uh, reinsert front squats and uh, progress further on those. So that way you can regulate injuries without having to take time off training. Right. I'm, I'm curious actually, did you, um, you as someone who is applying high-frequency training do you like basically ever need to resort to um, um, an implementation or change in your training practice with a certain client or individual where the key to making better progress is to reduce training frequency? Does that ever happen basically? Very, very rarely. Um, and it's basically always um, a case of volume and not frequency per se. But some individuals, they cannot help but go balls to the wall every time they train. So then very rarely it is useful to actively restrict them from um, going to the gym or training a certain body part at all because they cannot resist just training crap out of it. So uh, other than that, frequency independent of volume is only likely to have beneficial effects. Like I said, it's, it's active recovery, promotes blood flow, tissue turnover, uh, there's also good research indicating that exercise on any specific day improves sleep quality, which is hugely understated in importance for 
uh, your overall rate of recovery. Um, it can be a form of stress management, which is also very understated. Um, acute psychological stress, for example, in research has been shown to double the rate or to double the time of recovery needed from an exercise bout. So it uh, can have many benefits and is, as long as you can keep volume in check, only likely to be beneficial. Right. Okay, Menno, I think uh, these these uh, nerdy questions, the answers that you gave, these were super interesting. And just before we start wrapping up, a couple of um, kind of seemingly random rapid-fire questions that I want to ask you. Um, first of all, um, since we talked about injuries and these kind of stuff, um, what has been the biggest challenge for you in, in your training career or kind of just maybe life in general, but maybe let's focus on fitness, maybe maybe some injury, maybe some mental barrier that he had, had to get over. Did you have any kind of challenge that stands out in your life? Um, a little. Um, I'd say in terms of training, um, it's a problem that I have the elbows and knees of a six-year-old girl. <laughs> um, so I basically, on certain exercises where uh, injuries are never a problem, um, it's it's quite easy for me, like Romanian deadlifts, overhead pressing, to get really strong. Um, and I don't have to take a lot of precautions, but for the bench press, for example, or squats, it is very difficult for me to get um, to a very high strength level. Like, I've been playing around with the idea of powerlifting, but I think for me it's going to be um, suicide in terms of my connective tissue. Uh, and I'm going to have to sacrifice muscle growth a lot because I'll have to decrease training volume immensely to be able to train with that level of intensity in terms of percentage of 1RM and um, to go all out on the power lifts, which are inherently uh, quite sensitive to connective tissue, tissue damage and injury risk. So uh, that's something I probably maybe in the future at some point, but... Um, it's, it's something that does really limit me, especially now that, um, you know, as an advanced trainee, uh, you're, you're be very happy with one pound of muscle growth a year. And uh, it can be very useful to have more, um, to be able to focus more on self-improvement in strength or something more acute that you get the feeling, you know, you actually have some feedback that you are still improving, not the, the once a year point uh, when you're telling everything up. You think you probably gain a pound of muscle mass. So, um, yeah, that's something I um, would like. But overall, you know, I can't complain about my genetics. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, next question: uh, Do you have? And, and I'm asking this because you're the creator of the brand Bayesian Bodybuilding, which basically means rational bodybuilding. Do you have anything in your own training or nutrition or overall fitness lifestyle that you deem to be suboptimal in terms of what the science says, but you still do it because of personal preference? Oh, yeah, at libitum dieting. So um, for me, um, it is absolutely worth it to use at libitum diet. Uh, probably the majority of my time, and like I said, I even used it during contest prep. Um, even though I'm well aware that if I control my macros more strictly, if you're actually counting all of them, um, like always, all the time, I would get better progress because I can fine-tune uh, the exact surplus and deficit that I'll be in. Um, although I've learned to be very, very accurate at Libitum now as well, I could get you know slightly better results if I actually tracked everything meticulously all the time instead of just periodically. So 
Um, this is something where I willingly compromise on progress because for me the benefits of uh, being able to, um, to eat at libitum, just enjoy my food, uh, eat as much as I want, never have to worry about macros, anything like that, uh, often be able to lose fat without having the idea that, you know, I'm on a fat loss diet, I'm on a fat loss diet, that is, is definitely worth it, especially now that I'm talking about very small differences in muscle growth anyway. Right. Um, so speaking still of your Bayesian bodybuilding um, methods, um, you're a proponent of high frequency training. When was the last time you took two days, two consecutive days intentionally out of the gym? Intentionally? Yeah. <laughs> that, hasn't, that hasn't happened in years. <laughs> uh, I, li I literally can't remember that. I, I can't even remember the last time I took one day off intentionally, really. It's uh, the only days I take off are I'm ill or uh, travel plans just make it impossible. And I couldn't foresee that it would be impossible at the time. So I only arrived somewhere very late. Uh, and the gym turns out to be closed, even though I thought it would be open. Something like that. Uh, even then, I usually just do something like bodyweight work or something. Yeah, I wouldn't know. Okay, cool. Uh, I, I asked this because this is kind of the answer that I expected. Uh, next question. Um, you're immensely productive um, as far as if, if we look at how quickly you progress in, in, the, in your fitness career journey. Um, do you have any kind of productivity habit or something? I, as far as I know, you're not really a, a fan of smartphones or, or doing a lot of, um, you know, internet and Facebook and whatever checking on your smartphone. Do you have some kind of productivity habit like that that helps you to produce a lot of content and you to produce your best work? Yeah, I've I've read a lot about productivity research uh, because I think that is a productive thing to do, um, but uh, mainly I'd say that. I am very productive in what I do because I have a very, very sole focus of effort. I don't watch the news. I don't listen to the radio. Um, I never watch TV. Um, I know absolutely crap about politics, about um, religion, history. Um, I only know a little bit about law, which directly affects me. Um, I've actually made sure to forget about macroeconomics. Um, uh, in large part, because it also doesn't affect me. Um, so I basically uh, read, breathe, live uh, nutrition and exercise science. And um, it's what I do, it's what I love. And um, not doing anything else frees up a lot of time and mental effort that allows you to focus on that. A lot of people uh, think of me as like, oh, you know so much. Well, I, I know a reasonable amount about the things I study, but if you would put me in one of those quizzes, you know, like, um, was it Millionaire, whatever the show is, mm -hmm. um, whatever, there's this Millionaire show where people ask, ask random questions about trivia, about life and stuff, I would perform terribly. And um, so in terms of being like um, a very knowledgeable person, that would be my father. My father is the exact opposite. He knows uh, like the, the consensus about everything in life. Ask him about the weirdest stuff and he will be able to give a very sensible answer, but he will not be able to go into detail and actually spar with top researchers in the field, basically. So it's, it's very much about, um, really a lot of people have this. People think, oh, I don't, I don't know anything. And I'm like, well, you know the names of every person, every soccer playing person uh, that has ever entered the World Cup since like 1980. And the things you spout off in terms of statistics about football 
are to me just as impressive of what I could tell you about nutrition. So it's just a very different focus. Um, so I think that's the first thing. If you want to know a lot about nutrition and exercise science, you've got to focus on it. Right. Okay. It's, I actually I reviewed uh, th uh, this book called Deep Work not that long ago, and it seems like you're you live and breathe the philosophies in that book. But uh, okay, so if we were to like draw a little chart, you know, like when like a pie chart, like okay, this percent takes up this, this percent takes up this. If we were to look at your average day in terms of that, in terms of the things that you do and the things you think about, how do you think it would look like? Um, Why? Well, that's actually quite simple. Other than. Um I can basically list all the things I do in life. Um, it's like social engagements, spending time with my girlfriend, eating, training, uh, working, and traveling. And that's really it. So on any typical day, I spend the vast majority of my time working, uh, reading research, helping clients, uh, working on PT course materials, uh, training, eating, and it's mainly that if you look at my lifestyle, which to many people seems very extravagant, you know, tropical beaches, spending time in I don't know how many different countries, it's really more that my break activities are a lot more exotic. Um, but um, I've heard a lot of people say, how can you work like that? You're on a tropical island. I, I just can't see it working. Well, I'm on a tropical island, but and I may be sitting below a palm tree, but I'm sitting in front of my laptop the vast majority of the day. So it's just that when I take a break, I don't go to Starbucks to meet up with someone and have a coffee. I um, go to a Malayan um, temple or something, or I go scuba diving uh, or do something else that I really enjoy. Okay, so how many hours would you say a day you're working on average? Um, let's see, nine in bed, one TV, um, hour and a half in the gym, maybe another hour uh, food. The rest is work the vast majority of the time. So, nice. a lot and of hours. And you're awake about 15 hours because you sleep nine hours, right? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, funny question uh, to the end. Uh, well, not, not, quite, not exactly to the end because I have a very cool last question that I want to ask. But um, do, you, uh, do you have a machine in a gym considering that you said that you have a, the elbows of a six-year-old girl and because you travel a lot so you have to make a lot of compromises – is there a type of machine that you wish existed in commercial gyms but doesn't exist? For example, as an example, I wish there was a, a push-up machine that would allow you to load your push-ups very effectively. Do you have something like that? Uh, that's actually a really good example. I would, I would love that machine. Um, yeah. But um, Berger Fagali's um, hip thruster can be used quite effectively for that. You can load the belt, which you normally put around your hips to do hip thrusts, and you put it around your back, basically, and you can do them from a deficit as well. So the machine exists. Um, it's like also you get a lap pump machine, you have pullover machines. They're quite rare, uh, but almost any kind of thing, a forearm training, there are a lot of really good machines, but they're really rare, uh, even though they're super convenient. So um, I'd have a hard time coming up with something new. Um, um, uh, probably more. I'd probably manufacture it, have it manufactured, and market it if I came up with a really good idea. So I don't have. Yeah. All right. Uh, any kind of study design, well-controlled study design that you wish existed, uh, and you often think about it, um, or you can't think of one now uh, that wish existed but doesn't exist. Um, well, my research team is doing a lot of those studies insofar as we're capable of them. 
Uh, one study that we're looking into doing, but it's probably going to be really difficult. Uh, what I would really like to see is a long-term study uh, with one group consuming a really high-fat diet and the other group consuming a high-carb diet, isocaloric, protein-equated, uh, controlled resistance training, and then assess strength development, muscle growth over time. That would be something that um, I think would benefit and be of interest to a lot of people, but really hard to be able to find enough subjects uh, to get statistical power and um, be able to study them for such a long time period while they actually accurately track their macros. So not holding my, uh, not getting my hopes up really. Yeah, a related question to that. Is there any kind of thing that is not, not really studied, but is a very probable thing based on the available data we have, but it's unlikely we will ever have a well-controlled study on it, but you think it's worth making the leap to still implement it? Well, there's actually a lot of things. I was thinking of writing an article about uh, like things that I believe, even though research doesn't support them. Uh, a lot of people uh, would be surprised how much of uh, rehab and physical therapy and all those things uh, really isn't evidence-based yet at all. Um, like the article about structural balance theory I talked about, there's actually uh, very little research um, that suggests that um, it is the case that certain muscles become tight and others uh, get loose, for example, depending on if you do more pulling and pushing or that shoulder health is in any way adversely affected by doing more pushes uh, than pulling exercises. All of those things are really... Um, there's some research in sedentary individuals and people with just downright poor shoulder strength in the first place. But in terms of actual strength trainees, those kind of things, um, also foam rolling, many of the benefits for that, uh, stretching are really not documented at all. There's no or very little direct ev evidence supporting these kind of things. Um, like I said, also there's actually not much research long-term that compared uh, strength development or muscle growth um, in a very controlled scenario over time in groups differing in the carb to fat ratio of their diet. Um, the nutrient timing is also definitely a realm. Uh, even the, uh, the use of fasted training, which hasn't been studied in very practical settings uh, that much. Uh, so there, there are tons of areas where people think we have this great understanding about how things work and science says this, but really um, there's not that much data on it at all. I, I mean, this is the whole whole premise of your Bayesian philosophy, basically, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Very last question to you that um, I I was I was planning to ask you this question for a long time because ever since I heard you mention your idea about consumption versus investment days. As soon as I heard that, I was like, okay, this is going to be one, one prominent concept in my life from now on. Um, and for those people who don't know, you basically outlined your, your views, uh, or maybe I will have you introduce this concept briefly. But my question would be, could you actually give an example of how this would apply in your life or just in any kind of practical scenario when you decide, okay, this is not going to be an, an investment day, so I might as well make it a consumption day? Yeah, so the concept is basically uh, that um, due to my uh, training in economics, I like to think in economical terms about many things, like thinking of your calories as a budget, uh, which you can spend on certain foods, and also 
I like to categorize my days in terms of investment and consumption days, which means that if on any day you are doing things that are increasing, um, that are getting you closer to your goals over time, then that is an investment day. Even if uh, it may not have been the most enjoyable day of things to do, like uh, studying, um, well, for some people going to the gym, for me, that's not, um, that is also inherently rewarding. But, um, so things like studying, things we procrastinate on, don't like doing, but bring us closer to our goals, have um, an immediate cost, but a long-term benefit. Uh, those are usually investment activities. And on any day, you can think of your day as being an investment if you are closer to your goals now, which is good. You want most of your days to be net investment days. And if it's not an investment day, because you can't be super productive every day, you cannot, um, you know, not procrastinate every day. We're, we're all human and not perfect, like I said before. So if, if you're not going to have an investment day, then you want to make sure that you're at least getting a good consumption day, which means that even though it doesn't make you, that day doesn't bring you closer to your goals, it does uh, give you a lot of instant gratification. It does result in a lot of pleasure that day. So for example, um, tomorrow I'm going to have a consumption day, which is uh, going to a really good all-you-can-eat sushi restaurant. Uh, in terms of my macros, it's not gonna be, um, I'm not gonna fit it into my macros, I'm definitely gonna overeat. And um, I have to go to the gym before it because it's only brunch, they have this special offer where it's all-you-can-eat um, during brunch time. But for that, I have to go to the gym early, which also doesn't fit my schedule. And I'm almost productive in the mornings. So also have to um, do my most important work very quickly in the morning, then go to the gym, then go to the sushi and um, hang out there afterwards. But I'm going to really, really enjoy it. So for me, that is worth it. And I've been making sure that this past week um, I've been having every day is going to or has been a very productive investment day. Yeah, that, that's actually funny because just two days ago, I, I bankrupted an all-you-can-eat sushi restaurant. And and, and I, actually, I've had the, the luck to to be in the same sushi restaurant as you were when we had a meetup in your PT course. And I, I before, I, I thought that nobody could out-eat me in sushi, but I just saw your, your table and I couldn't move anymore. And your table was like still ordering these giantific plates. I, I was impressed, man. Like, I, I don't know how you did it, but it was very impressive. Yeah, a lot of people think that, um, you know, I'm genetically gifted in terms of fat loss because I maintain a six pack most of the year, year round, every year. But uh, I actually have a quite a slow metabolism in terms of uh, how low I have to go during weight loss. And my appetite is the largest of almost anyone I've ever seen. Like I've, <laughs> I literally hold the record in over a dozen sushi places around the world. Like a lot of people have actually told me like, oh, I've never actually seen someone go 12 rounds or yeah. you say like um yeah this is this is literally a record in terms of how many of the uh, crosses you've put on the uh, the menu it's just quite funny because uh, it's, it's sort of a, a mixed blessing on one end i get to enjoy a lot of food and it's awesome but on the other hand it's actually really practically difficult also like when i'm eating with my parents the portion sizes i need to be satiated are just impractically large yeah, are are you gonna have to diet now for a week after this sushi experience? Or? No, I'm. I can actually still lose fat and have like an all-you-can-eat sushi uh, once a week. 
Um, I've become very routine and meticulous in how I choose the food sources, uh, which sauces I take, um, how I order the selection of food, uh, which ones I choose, etc. Yeah. Uh, well, um, yeah, you should you should try. We, we have I don't know if you have it there, but we have that one when the food comes on a conveyor belt. So like it's, it just comes next to your table. You should try one of those. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, man. Thank you so much. I you dropped a lot of golden nuggets, and and I'm I'm sure listeners are going to enjoy this a ton. Uh, where where can people find you? Is there anything you would like to mention about your work, services, anything like that? You can go to BeijingBodybuilding.com. Uh, you'll find um, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can subscribe. Uh, there's a button on my website, uh, but you'll see everything there, and you can check it out. See if you like it. Awesome. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Menno, and please keep up the great work. Um, you're doing a lot of great service to the community. So, um, yeah, keep on doing what you're doing. We appreciate you. My pleasure. All right, folks, hope you enjoyed this interview with Menno Henselmans. Before you go, though, let's look at some of the lessons that we learned from this interview. Number one, when it comes to Menno's general approach to science and developing his views and methods, they always born out of some small shifts in belief. We now see Menno as a guy who is doing a lot of unconventional and innovative things in his coaching practice, but innovations are never a result of some big eureka moment when you all of a sudden come across a study that completely changes everything that you previously believed about something. This actually reminds me of a science concept called the adjacent possible that says that New discoveries and innovations are always born out of getting to the cutting edge of the current science. So if you wish to once become an innovator and a pioneer in a field like exercise and nutrition, you first need to get to an expertise level that allows you to get to the cutting edge. And only then can you hope to discover something new and exciting. And there is just no shortcut to that. Number two, when it comes to fitness, one thing that I think we can take home from this is that when it comes to things that we can do in our training and nutrition, it's not just simply an 80-20 analysis and a very clear hierarchy of importance like we want to believe, at least not when it comes to advanced individuals. In other words, when it comes to advanced trainees, it might not be as simple as just get your calories and protein in and then you will get 80% of the benefits that you would want and the rest like nutrient timing is just the icing on the cake. It might actually be that at a certain point there are certain thresholds that you need to hit with the things that you do. And at that point, it could actually be that if you miss out on a certain thing like nutrient timing, it's not like you still get 80% of the benefits and miss out the other 20%. It might actually be that in that case, you don't get any muscle growth. Now, obviously it's important to realize that probably this only applies to more advanced people. And for people more in the beginner kind of status, the hierarchy of importance when it comes to training and nutrition principles, might in fact be as cut and dry as getting your calories and macros in will indeed give you 80-90% of the benefits and the rest is just icing on the cake. Three, when it comes to self-improvement, the one thing that hit me strongly was 
this idea of the growth mindset and focusing on growth-oriented goals as opposed to performance goals. While I do think that having great ambitious goals in life is great and motivating, I find it interesting how Menno said that putting timelines and numbers on goals is just empty words and arbitrary. While this kind of goes against the whole smart goal concept, which is goals should be specific, measurable, realistic, and and time-based, I do see how it can take your mind off of the actual process and focusing on the very best you can do in the moment. For myself, I know that when I set these realistic but very ambitious and time-based goals in the gym, for example, I inevitably always made silly decisions in the moment and try to progress too fast. And it does seem like these time-based goals that we set to ourselves are kind of a byproduct of our society and the norms it dictates. So perhaps we're doing it wrong and we should just focus on doing each day the very best that we can do. And like some smart person said, instead of trying to obsessively build a wall, just try to put down a perfect brick each and every day. And lastly, I really love this concept of investment versus consumption days because it really helps to ease my mind, for example, during times when I stay home to work on something that's important to me. Maybe I'm dieting and turning down some binge drinking event or something, but it helps to know that, okay, this was an investment day today and there will be times soon when I'll dedicate more times to consumption. Conversely, if someday I just really don't feel like crushing it, then it's great to just say, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy the hell out of this day and I won't feel bad that I wasn't productive and I'll just be resolute in my uselessness. Now, of course, the only danger I see in this is someone might find an excuse in this to get into an all or nothing mindset with nutrition, for example, where if I can control my macros today perfectly, I might as well binge and then it will be a consumption day. And of course, that's not at all what this concept says. I think what it does say instead is that being productive and making sacrifices is great. And not being productive and really having pleasure and fun and making yourself happy is also great. And that in between non-productive but also non-enjoyable gray zone, when you're bored, maybe you're eating out of boredom or binging out of frustration, you're not happy with yourself but you're also not having fun, that's the kind of point that you just want to eliminate. That's just not a state of being that has a place in our lives. That's the enemy to defeat. So dear listener, go ahead and make some investment today. Or if you don't want to, do something really fun and enjoy yourself by doing something great that's really meaningful to you and makes you happy. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. It will be available in YouTube and in podcast format. And I'll link all of those in the show notes. So I hope you enjoyed it and see you next time. Oh, and I forgot to say, please subscribe if you haven't already, because lots of cool stuff like this will come up in the future. So now again, see you next time.